0: This is episode 69 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Welcome to the Jungle. Hi everybody, welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work the advice show where we talk about work-related issues or challenges and some ideas and suggestions for how to deal with them. I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and the host of the show, and I thank you for joining me in my quest to make our workplaces better and more welcoming to everyone. Let's do this. I am really honored to have a new guest on the show today, James Lindsay, and I met James through the internet. Yay, internet. I'll introduce him. He has a PhD in mathematics and a background in physics. He's the author of six books, including the recent book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, co-authored with Peter Bogosian, and the forthcoming book, Cynical Theories, co-authored with Helen Pluckrose. He led the, quote, grievance studies affair. It sounds like some sort of cross between a spy novel and An academic journal in which he and two colleagues actually with Peter and Helen authored several hoax papers and submitted them to academic journals to expose what they perceived as poor scholarship in queer, race, gender, fat, and sexuality studies. And seven of the papers were accepted for publication. So welcome to the show, James.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited.
0: First, I want to thank you for this work that you did in the Grievance Studies Affair. It obviously brought you a lot of attention and a lot of criticism, as hoax papers often do. It raises a lot of questions for people who work in the academic journal space. But for me personally, I would not have known The situation that we have gotten ourselves into with some of these studies, if you had not undertaken that initiative and if it had not received the media attention that it did. And I remember like yesterday, opening up my computer and having this thing in front of me and reading this and just being astonished at at the place that we have arrived at, right? I just didn't realize we had gotten so far out there, so to speak. And we could talk, spend our whole time talking about that and I don't wanna spend our time that way. But there were two things that really shocked me. One of them was the paper about that we could investigate our rape culture as a society by observing dogs' behavior in dog parks, that was pretty trippy that that was out there. And then the other one I remember, and I don't know if this paper got published or not, but that it was actually proposed in one of the hoax papers that is a way to educate uh, young white males about uh, how the experience historically that other people have had was that we should uh, handcuff them and have them sit on the floor of a a college education room as part of this education process for them. And that one also just knocked me on my heels. So I have to say personally for me, thank you for doing that work.
1: Um, <laughs> it was, it, I, I mean, it was necessary. It was, it was really a bizarre experience to go through that. And um, we were as shocked as um, you were, I assure you, when our papers started getting positive feedback and then eventually accepted, published the dog rape paper even got given an award for excellence in scholarship by the journal. I mean, it was just flabbergasting to see what was going on uh, behind the curtain in in the kind of cultural studies related fields
0: all right. so i I follow you on Twitter, and I am often amused and relieved. Uh, To see your reaction to some of the kind of crazy stuff that's that's on Twitter about gender And i've worked in this space for quite a long time not from a feminist theory standpoint, but more of hey, we've got some gender issues in the workplace that I think sometimes affect our ability to work together well and how we interact. And so, you know, how can we kind of bring those out in the open and talk about those and have grown-up conversations about them? Well, that's pretty different sometimes from what happens on Twitter, um, where, I mean, to my eye, we're just seeing some pretty amazing you know sexist comments and and really male bashing comments on social media. And so when I saw your article with Helen why the pendulum need not swing it caught my eye because I feel as though yeah, we're experiencing this kind of, you know, movement in how people are talking about the opposite sex in not a positive way, you know, not my one step forward, this is all positive kind of way, but, you know, just some reaction, reactionary kind of stuff. So, I I read the article and I think a spring would probably fly out of my head if I tried to truly understand it. But for those of us who know nothing about feminist theory and critical theory, can you explain in a nutshell what you were trying to say in that paper?
1: Yeah. So um, I, from what I'm gathering, I've listened to a little bit of your show. I've, I've kind of paid attention to a little bit of dialogue. We had an email before we got here. If I understand, and if you like me on Twitter, I guess, you're probably, um, to put a technical spot on it from my own point of reference, you're probably coming at the workplace uh, gender issue from a perspective that would be described as liberal feminism, which is one that sees that there are issues that still need to be resolved. And the goal is to create something like equality of opportunity and fairness of access and things like that. And I would actually agree with that position. Most people don't understand that about me and they think I'm some kind of lunatic and non- conservative or, I don't know, all kinds of things. I get called. You uh, get but, called
0: a lot of different uh, things. Yeah, for sure.
1: I get called an enormous uh, <laughs> menagerie of things, I guess. As best, it's really, really kind of horrifying. Some of the stuff people say to me, but um, I actually agree and Helen even more strongly agrees that there is Uh, uh, there are lingering issues related to sex and gender. They apply in the workplace, they apply in society and culture, they apply, you know, you name the domain, there's something there. And yet, um, there are better and worse ways of kind of encapsulating what's going on. So from kind of the, what you see from the, whether you want to say the far left, whether you want to say the feminist theory perspective, um, you have this concept that's ultimately known as blank slateism. Uh, And that view is that humans are blank slates. It doesn't matter whether you're born male or female. We're all the same psychologically, cognitively, etc. This does not match data. Uh, We don't have solid reasons to believe that it's a lot more complicated. The reality is a lot more complicated than that. And then on the other side of the coin, whether you want to see that as conservative or right wing, or often it's 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 socially conservative is where you see it most commonly. And this is the the thing we're seeing resurge right now, or starting to resurge, or become cool at least, which is sort of frightening and terrifying. You have what's called uh, um, gender essentialism, which is that or biological essentialism, where men and women are essentially extraordinarily different. The men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Oh. If, you know, those of us that are old enough to remember that yep. kind of mentality that we're actually almost like two different species that are supposed to operate in some complementary fashion, you know, and so there are very rigid gender roles. Men should do this. A real man is that, and women should do this. And a real woman is that. And depending on, you know, how far into the social conservative view you go, that can be very much like even a woman's place is in the home or men and women should never interact in a professional setting. It can get really strict. And so our contention in that essay is that both of those views are wrong. Historically, we're very, edu- very much a gender essentialist kind of view, which is why I would be associated with conservatism. There's, you know, the man's job and there's the woman's job. And we've gone away from that. But what's happened really since if I were to kind of put a, a finger on it, somewhere in the in the 60s, 70s or 80s is really where all this started to shift, depending on different domains and different degrees. We've seen a shift away from this kind of liberal feminism that said, hey, let's get women to have equal opportunities if they want to work they can work. What the heck's the problem with that? And, you know, that's a kind of liberal mindset to this now very odd kind of equity mindset where if men and women aren't doing exactly the same things in exactly the same proportions, that's proof that there must be discrimination happening and it's its own kind of um, weird thing. So that's been pushed very, very hard for a number of years. To the point now where like I said, we're starting to see a backlash So the pendulum swinging between these two views that both have kind of a kernel of truth But which are both wrong and then there's this liberal view in the middle where most people are and we're kind of all staring at it Like wait, what stop Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. One of the commenters on that article in fact, it was the first one that I read had kind of this hand wavy approach or response to the article saying well, you know, I think you'd have to go pretty far to to see that there's this push into more gendered roles. You know, I see where we are today, yada, yada. But I have to say, from my perspective, I am seeing things that, that really worry me. Me and I too. Wor- and I worry that these things are going to result in us working less well together and, in fact, put pushing men and women further apart and understanding each other less well. So I'll give you a couple of examples for what I'm saying. And one is yeah. this resurgence of the Pence rule mm-hmm. or the Billy Graham rule where a man should not have dinner with the woman who's not his wife. Well, that causes all kinds of problems in the work world where we often are traveling together and having dinner together. We have to meet with each other. I mean, this is just part of of our work life. And right. I'm hearing, like I even heard this on the radio, some caller asked a host of a show if it was still okay to meet with his female colleagues behind closed door. And the host of the show said, uh, you know what, I, I don't think you should do that anymore. And I was just pounding on the steering wheel like, what? Stop. What are you doing? I mean, this is classic example of sexual discrimination. If you have different rules for the guys that you work with and the women that you work with.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see all of that.
0: Yeah. So, t- So tell me what you're seeing and what your reaction is.
1: So, I do see those kinds of things. Um, and I have not seen directly because I mean, I sort of work in a business setting, but it's, it's kind of really small in, in all of this. And so, you know, everybody knows everybody and it's groups and things like that. So, I don't have that experience like you would have in so much of a corporate setting. But I've read so many articles or listened to things where it's kind of like what you said, where the host said, uh, yeah, maybe you shouldn't meet behind closed doors or whatever with a, with a, a female, if you're a man. And of course, when I was at the university, it was an adamant rule that uh, in our department that we were not allowed to have closed door meetings across the sex in our uh, in our uh, offices if a student comes in for office hours or whatever. No oh, closed door meetings ever. Wow. So if some you know, young woman came to my office and wanted to cry about her grades or something, she was gonna, and I was, of course, I was a graduate student at the time. So we're in this big open office area. We have doors, but there's just people, you know, it's lots of offices crammed all in this kind of one little common area. And so she's just going to have to cry in front of all of these people because I can't close the door or talk to her about her grade or whatever. And but if
0: but if a male student came to see you, you would be able to speak privately with him and he would be able to confide in you?
1: It was discouraged, but uh, yes. Um, I, mean,
0: I mean, it's just very problematic.
1: It, it becomes very difficult. The other thing that I'm seeing is that you'll see men being less willing to take up mentorship roles with women because those often involve, you know, private meeting or you know, close, closely working together. Sure. And they're afraid maybe that there's going to be some kind of an accusation or that there's just going to be some kind of a problem develop or somebody's going to start getting suspicious because you don't now on the kind of culture that we have with this sort of really hard pushed. Panic around, you know, the the most. Uh, I don't even know how to say it right, but the, it's like the most crazy exaggeration of what sexual harassment actually looks like, um, or sexual assault even actually looks like. These things have been exaggerated tremendously to where, for example, you have people, celebrities getting in trouble for saying that um, patting somebody on the butt is not the same thing as raping them, and we shouldn't treat them the same. And this you know, guy gets canceled for it or whatever they say these days. That um, There's no, there's
0: no, pers- there's no spectrum allowed. There's no anymore. spectrum. There's
1: no perspective. There's no nothing. And so, I mean, we have this to, to such a degree that you don't even have to be accused. So for example, if you and I met privately in your office or whatever behind closed doors and we just say we had a, we were hatching a secret plan like the grievance studies affair. So we started having lots of meetings quietly In the office to cook up our plan and this of course happens when you're developing business models or whatever in a corporate setting sure all of a sudden just somebody else in the office who becomes suspicious or somebody who's um, Which Shakespeare play is it where he says that? that You don't need to have anything really go on. You just have to suggest that his wife is cheating on him And, and then all the madness Comes out. So, somebody in the office who either has some sneaky, malicious, careerist intent on the cynical side of it or is just trying to be some kind of a do gooder could mm-hmm. come along and then report that there's probably untoward behavior happening between us behind those closed doors. They think something's going on, and now we might be subject to all these investigations to where guilt is assumed. And um, because the theory says that between the two of us, even if you were my boss, there's always a power dynamic of male to female that has to come into play. And so that unjust power dynamic, you know, puts you in a position to where I'm pressuring you and it's, it's properly insane. And so the result is people are backing away from, from roles like mentorship and things like that. Who's that going to hurt though, right? If the hypothesis is, and I think the data bear this out, is that in most industries, men hold many more of the positions of power and executive control if they can't possibly mentor women, if that's merely a historical artifact of, of previous sexism that doesn't even exist anymore, for example, if they can't mentor women to get to those kinds of levels, then you're never going to fix the problem. You're just going to continue excluding women from the situation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the instant follow-on to all of this, though nobody will talk about it, is let's just not hire them at all.
1: That's the that's the other thing. Yeah. I mean, I've actually seen, I, I've heard people, I should say, I mean, real people say that, you know, people talking to me about how they're doing a business and they're trying to hire, you know, form a corporate board and they've just decided that they're you, just whatever you do, don't put a woman on it. And it's I, you know, I'm kind of horrified about these things.
0: And right? Yeah, it's then, real. That's real sexual discrimination. It's
1: it's genuine sexual discrimination. And the weird thing is, is because there's actually liability attached to it. There's a justification for it. Right. There's a perfectly rational justification because you never know if you're hiring that person who's going to blow something out of proportion and um, cause massive problems and blow up your entire enterprise of course you know this isn't to diminish the fact that real problems exist real problems occur and they shouldn't and there should be you know accountability for those things but it's also possible for like i said for cynical reasons whether it's careerism or even for uh reasons like that they've imbibed enough theory to where they interpret uh banal things as somehow significant it's entirely possible that you're you're going to bring in somebody who's going to blow up your thing because they uh can manipulate that system that says that you know any accusation of sexism misogyny harassment assault etc has to be treated as absolutely true
0: it's all the same
1: right because it's it's all the same yeah impact rather than intent is the thing so you know if you and i work together and i you're having a rough day or whatever and i come by and put a hand on your shoulder and you then decide that i was being creepy rather than supportive the impact to you is all that matters and people are going to be afraid of them. What are they going to do? They're going to stop talking to each other, They're going to stay away from each other. It's going to create weird, sterile, awkward environments. When you talk across the sexes, the same thing happens actually around race with all of the issues coming out of critical race theory, getting dragged into everything. You talk across some difference, some demographic difference, and then you're you're always kind of afraid you're going to step on something that you shouldn't have by mistake. It's one thing you know, to want to prevent Racism or sexism from manifesting. It's another thing entirely to create conditions that are so hostile to it That don't allow adults to settle things between each other and they're going to bring in administrative uh, Solutions to everything that people are afraid to interact and navigate those differences and issues themselves like adults Um, Those are two different situations and the people who lose are the people who if you want to call it I don't but if you want to call it systemic Disparity: the people who are on the bottom end of that stick are the ones who are going to lose every single time uh, as a result.
0: Yeah, bingo. That's the thing that I'm most worried about is that we've turned this thing on its head so much that we can't even have people resolve these issues or interact with each other in a normal way. And it's the question of liability that I think is is significant here because we have people like the, the radio show host and HR and the attorneys now advising people, and in some cases not just advising men, but but telling them this is what you have to do, these are the rules, which are really prohibiting these normal you know, human trusting relationships to develop so that we can interact with each other in grown up ways. And the point I keep making is those guys don't care whether or not your team functions well. Right. It's no no skin off their nose if you now have this weird, uncomfortable, stiff relationship with your female subordinate. And, you know, you, you, in fact, are definitely far less comfortable working with her than with your male subordinates. They don't care about that. Right, and and right. that's that's the real damage that I think is being done here.
1: Right, or if you install obstacles to normal working uh, situations. So, for example, if you create it to where a man should never be, say, alone with with a woman you know, you start getting these weird questions like, well, okay, well, who's the third party that's got to be there. Can it be two men and a woman? And now this gets weird. And so maybe you need two men and two women. And so now to do any kind of business or any kind of discussion, you've got to somehow get four people together. I mean, it just creates these weird obstacles Mm -hmm. to normal functioning on a, on a day-to-day level that they're, they're sometimes fine, but they're often unrealistic or just cumbersome and, the question becomes, you know, for what? And and again, who's going to lose from these kinds of things? If it just becomes more expensive and more difficult to do business when you have women in the office, you're going to create a selection pressure that, within the boundaries of whatever liability people can get away with it, they're going to avoid having women in the office.
0: Yeah. It's really hard to prove that people are discriminating against hiring women, and that's just going to be an easy way out. And the thing that the image that keeps coming to my mind is, because this is, you know, classic business behavior Okay, so you're told that you can't meet with the door closed with your female subordinate. So every time you meet with her, the door has to be open. If you meet with your male subordinate, it's great. The door can be closed. So you guys can talk about whatever you want. You can bond. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a moment of of sharing and of getting to know each other. But when the woman's there, the door is open. So that means every, as you say, confidential conversation, if you're strategizing about something or her performance appraisal or any conversations that really should be private, the door is open. Like with a lawyer. Right. And so Okay, that you know, the you know the message that's that 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 sends when your door is open, it means come on in, right? Mm-hmm. We're not we're just chatting, right? We're not having a really serious conversation. And so I keep having this image of this poor woman like trying to have serious conversations with her boss, and people just keep sticking their head in because of the message that the open door sends
1: right, exactly. yeah, it's again, its just creates cumbersome uh, office dynamics. It creates a tense situation where people are afraid to work around each other and engage in certain ways it, it really it's one of these things where where the the phrase that the road to hell is paved with good intentions really kind of shines through
0: mm. all right so enough for me about ranting about this where we've uh, arrived you've co-authored a book called how to have impossible conversations and i noticed on twitter that you were kind of pointing people toward this book before Thanksgiving when a lot of people seem to be gearing up to have a big head of steam to go in and confront their relatives about their, whatever, their bad, their, their bad thinking. So tell us how to step away from my ranting, how we don't get sucked into these kind of self-righteous and angry exchanges.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's a lot of things that you should do. And in the book, the first thing we talk about uh, after the introduction is that in every conversation, you have to take the time to identify the goals of that conversation if you want it to be successful. Now, obviously, a lot of times you do this kind of intuitively and you don't really have to think about it if it's kind of a casual conversation. But if you're expecting that there's likely to be something contentious, whether it's a negotiation, whether it's that aunt or uncle who just won't let it go and has to bring the political thing up over and over and over again at Thanksgiving dinner, I have a family member who does this, so I understand uh, firsthand. Whatever it happens to be, you do have to keep in mind that paying some attention to what the goal of the conversation is which is context dependent should be important. So for Thanksgiving, for example, you know, one of the reasons we were pointing people toward the book is that the point of Thanksgiving isn't to talk about politics, or it really shouldn't be. Maybe if that's the thing your family does, (laughs) and that's just what like your tradition, you know, I'll admit freely, our family's tradition is to drink a lot. Mm -hmm. So we have a very boozy Thanksgiving, a very boozy Christmas, and it's wonderful. And that's what we do. Um, If you want to argue politics, and that's what your family does, I'm not telling you, you're wrong to do that, do whatever you want to do. But if Most of the time, people, especially if it's kind of, you know, Thanksgiving kind of has that family reunion vibe a lot of the time. The goal really should be to reconnect with family, see what's going on, foster those relationships, come together, and maybe in a spirit of Thanksgiving and thanks and gratitude and just enjoy some food and time together. And so when the goal is that... It allows you to start calibrating what you will respond to and how you'll respond to it. So one of my favorite, and I think the most important technique in the book is one that I developed for myself over the years. Full disclosure, I am a, I try not to be terribly political anymore, but I am technically a liberal atheist who lives in the Southeast. So everybody around me has different political and religious views than I do. Mm -hmm. And so I spend a lot of time with people I disagree with a lot. And I finally figured out that the best way to do this is to let them be wrong. If they bring up politics or something like that, my goal should be to maintain the relationship, maintain the the warmth and civility of the conversation. So if they bring up politics or something that I have a disagreement with them about, that tendency, you know, is caught in that very famous cartoon that, that ended up going viral and it said, you know, come to bed. I can't. Somebody's wrong on the internet. That feeling
0: <laughs> that you, oh, You'll never sleep again. <laughs> yeah, that feeling
1: that you have, though, when somebody says something wrong and you have to answer it, that feeling is actually rooted in a psychological phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. And it turns out that if you learn to catch that that's happening while it's happening, you can actually just decide to let it go. You don't, you can resolve the dissonance by deciding that you don't care that that person's wrong. And if they're on some kind of a rant, the nature of emotional conversations or identity rooted conversations is that you have to let them go. You have to let it get to the end. Maybe ask them some gentle questions, try to learn more about what they think while they're in it and try to just keep it on, on gentle terms and on their terms. And eventually when the moment's right, you know, you don't have to, certainly don't argue back. Don't try to convince them of something. Don't tell them they're wrong. Don't necessarily even try to upset their their beliefs. Just let them have it, let them be wrong. And then when the moment arises to try to shift, you know, as smoothly as possible, as often as you can shift the conversation to a different topic, you should. So my family member and I were there at Thanksgiving. And like I said, we have a very boozy Thanksgiving. And so um, we were very boozy. And so that, you know, we kept kind of wading into these waters where we disagree. And then I made a point of remembering that the point of, and I think he did also, but the point of Thanksgiving wasn't to get in an argument about this crap. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually matter that much, at yeah. least not today. And we're not gonna change each other's mind, especially when we're drunk anyway. So let's shift to talking about something we both have interest in instead, or you know, just let it go for a second. And a thing like Thanksgiving, it's usually really easy. You don't want to do it all awkwardly, like the scene in the films or whatever, but you could always shift to talking about the food or how you made it or, you know, for us, the drinks or what kind of things you're looking forward to doing. There's lots of different things you can shift or you can actually say, hey, you guys, why don't we all watch a movie and just pick a movie that doesn't necessarily, like, pick something like Harry Potter or something. It doesn't have any political overtones or something everybody always likes and just shift away from it. And Keep in mind, though, the goal is not you don't have to make every time you hear something wrong turn into a, a, a place to correct that. It's actually OK. It's psychologically is uncomfortable, but you can learn to to rest in that and it not bother you much anymore with a little bit of practice. It's OK for somebody else to believe something that's not correct. And if there's some more important issue at hand, whether it's a business nego- negotiation, a Thanksgiving you know, harmony of the family, put it aside. A good example from my own experience is that one time we were having a discussion on camera of all things with somebody about the grievance studies work that we did. And the person we're talking with was very intelligent man. And he ends up saying something along the lines of hey, "I think he doesn't actually properly believe in God even anyway, but he brings up that he thinks that even science is based in faith And then um, not to throw them under the bus at all, but both Helen and Peter uh, immediately just kind of like got hooked. It's like they couldn't leave it alone. And they had our whole conversation we were having on camera now got derailed into arguing about whether or not science depends on a measure measure of faith. You don't actually have to do that. I sat there kind of bemused thinking, wow, you don't actually have to do that. (laughs) you know, watching these, this whole thing just fall off of the rails. And then of course, by the time we got back on the rails, we're all friends, but by the time I got back on the rails, there's this weird kind of discomfort. There was just an argument where we had all been, you know, very amicable just moments before just avoid the temptation to go there and, you know, stare at it for a minute and realize it's not going to add anything to do it. And that's the best advice that I can give you for how you avoid going there. Certainly don't challenge the person's belief unless you're ready to get an argument though, because that's what will happen.
0: It's really interesting to think through this because I I either am very tolerant of cogniz- cognitive dissonance, which is possible, or I'm just not that idealistic, or I'm pretty conflict averse because mm-hmm. I, I don't, I see this on social media that people feel driven to correct someone when they're, you know, when their thinking is wrong. I just personally, I'm just not that way.
1: Yeah, that's how you do it.
0: Yeah, all those things. I'm just like, oh no, I don't want to have a fight about, especially a fight about something that's not even relevant to us right it's sort of outside of our own personal relationship
1: yeah like if it's the president and then you get in a fight with your brother about the president yeah what are are you accomplishing yeah you are going to change nothing the president is if you think the president's great he's still going to be great and if you think he's terrible he's still going to be terrible after you get done wrecking your relationship with your brother and probably neither one of you is going to change your mind in the process it's just unfathomable to me what the desire to start correcting and poking and prodding at that, you know, I know where it comes from, but I, it's, it's amazing that we've deluded ourselves culturally into believing that that's the right thing to do all the time with everybody.
0: Yeah. That, that's what I see is this sort of push on everyone now to, to have this proper thinking and that it's like our job to go. (laughs) and and duke it out with you know that to me that's just really weird that's almost like a faith thing right that you're some sort of soldier for for it is
1: for for your your side yeah helen and i in the article that you were talking about the essay we wrote about the pendulum not swinging we actually have a section titled um existential polarization where we try to kind of i mean we're talking specifically there about gender essentialism versus um uh blank slate Approaches to sex and gender but it applies pretty much to everything more broadly politically right now or everything that has political valence Which is increasingly everything uh that this concept we came up with in 2017 is uh, like I said called existential polarization and it's kind of the state that we're in now politically is such that both Sides if you want to just simplify it to a two-sided thing believe that if the other side gets power, it's either gonna be the end of the world or the end of our way of life or the end of our civilization. So it's some kind of an existential threat. And so what happens is that the people that are kind of sympathetic say left or sympathetic right that are mostly mainline center and in the middle and and not that nuts are there, they see the well advertised craziness and scariness from the other side because that's the um, kind of mudslinging game that's being played by the home team. And then Every time some contentious issue comes up, there's this pull that kind of radicalizes people further down their side into the importance of believing that their side is the only way. And again, it's what it's all operating off of is that it's almost a sales pitch of that there's an existential threat if the other side gets any kind of power. And this is, of course, absurd. The real existential threat comes from the fact that we have extremist factions that are arguing to the point where we can't do anything. You know, if we can adapt and work toward our problems, we can actually work towards solutions. But when we're frozen because we're in this deep polarization and everybody hates each other and nobody can cooperate on anything or come to solutions, that's where we really run into a danger. So I think that that's kind of... Where that's driven, but you are correct that it's it's a i mean my previous study before I got involved in all of this stuff was was in the dynamics of of religion on a psychological level, and that is exactly what this is is it's a very um faith based mindset in fact it's not even just faith based because i don't want to wrap all faith into that it's it's a fundamentalist faith mindset um it, it it's an authoritarian mindset and it applies right wing left wing libertarians do it pick your religion they have their variant of it uh not all catholics not all muslims not all this it's but there's always that wing within them that is that way and um it's a it's a real problem that when they start to gain enough influence that we can't let it you know we can't kind of ignore that extremism
0: so to shift gears a little bit just to educate our listeners a little bit about this that you're i've um, heard you explain on in other forums about this, and it was very helpful to me to talk about what is the social justice movement that we see reference to and contrast that with sort of where I was coming from, this idea that let's have uh, people be able to make free choices that are not dictated by their sex. So can you help us uh, uh, figure that part out?
1: Yeah, that one, that's, it's very tricky, but not, it's not tricky in concepts. It's very simple in concepts. It's very tricky because the words overlap. There are two things that go by the name social justice. One is a concept or a principle. Uh, and there are different approaches to that concept or principle. Uh, what you, as I tried to pin you down a little bit at the beginning, uh, you would be taking more of a liberal approach to that. You might look at philosophers like John Rawls, he had a theory of justice. He used the the idea of a metaphor called the, the veil of ignorance to try to decide how you would try to organize the rules of a society such that it's actually socially just. It doesn't have any baked in unfairness. Um, And there's been a lot of liberal approaches to social justice. There are also illiberal ones. And it turns out that the movement that's now famous for, and has made the phrase social justice famous, that has named itself social justice. um, That is a particularly ideological approach to it. It is, I don't say this out of my own analysis. They are explicitly in their own words against liberalism. So they are not a liberal approach. They're an illiberal approach. And they mostly want to force a particular narrow conception of, of justice upon society that is rooted in concepts, the way that they've defined them, like diversity, inclusion, equity, and so on. And those are sort of the big buzzwords, of course, that you hear around business now too, or diversity, equity, and inclusion are everywhere. So the two things aren't quite the same thing. In fact, they're not at all the same thing. But the ideology, the the movement relies upon the good branding of the concept. Because everybody, even the every, almost everybody, I should say, outside of a very small fringe on the far right wing, typically, nearly everybody wants social justice. Everybody wants people to be treated fairly and have equal opportunity. Some of them will argue over what that looks like and how you're going to achieve it but pretty much everybody holds this ideal now. And social injustice is certainly way out of fashion and has been for at least a couple of decades. On the other hand, you have this very um, sharp pointed ideology that's going to tell you exactly what it looks like. For example, that you'll have perfect gender parity in um, all positions of status. Of course, they don't want perfect gender parity in everything, they want positions of status to have perfect gender parity, because they are perfectly content, for example, not to have a 50-50 split of male and female trash collectors. Or or,
0: or, pl- or, or loggers, or lobster yeah. fishermen.
1: Or lobster fishermen, yeah, exactly. Any of those really dirty, nasty, dangerous jobs, um, or low-status jobs, the parity is not important. But when it comes to doctors, it comes to professors, it comes to CEOs, it comes to uh, people with political power people that have lots of cultural and social influence, they want, what they say is they want parody. This isn't quite right. They don't actually want parody. They want something further that it would be kind of maybe historical parody or something like that. You could capture that when, when I think she was joking, but when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked at one point a few years ago, how many female justices would have to sit on the Supreme court before we have equality. And she said nine. And, Obviously, the right answer to that question is, is the way of equality when nobody cares whether a justice is male or female, uh, that they're just a justice. Yeah. But the answer was nine, which statistically could happen under a situation of complete equality, but is unlikely. And we could probably calculate the odds of it pretty quickly if we wanted to. It's possible, might come up sometimes, but isn't terribly likely. But the difference is to create parity across, say, the 240 years that the institution has already existed, which has been almost all male. So you're going to have to have almost all women for a long time to equal that out. Uh, So when you start having a view like that, that then becomes very, very rigid. I mean, I don't know if this actually got implemented. I know there was an an initiative in California to put at least on any corporate board, there has to be at least one female member, maybe at the C-suite level. I don't know.
0: It was on the board. It was on the board.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just I get the I get the the impulse, and there's the raft of problems that come with that is just enormous, and so um, it's trying to force a particular conception upon the world that's rooted in ultimately what's called critical theory, uh, and that has its own particular normative vision, and until that is achieved, everything possible is wrong and they don't really tolerate dissent. If you try to argue against it, say, if you you were a woman who said, I don't think this is right, they'd say that's because you suffer some psychological malady called (laughs) internalized misogyny, which means it's unfalsifiable. There's no way to disagree. Because if I disagree, they say, well, that's your man's, that's male perspective. You, of course you think that. So now I'm disqualified. And then if you disagree, they'll say, well, you have internalized misogyny or you're seeking patriarchal reward. I mean, they have, they have, dozens of concepts for every one of these things to kind of just discredit anybody who disagrees with them for what boiled down to psychological, ideological, or or other reasons. Which makes sense, since critical theory was born by fusing together Marxism and Freudian thought, which... Oh, my God. There you go.
0: (laughs) That sounds terrible. I have to say, I think my fundamental bias is if people start saying to me, this person doesn't get to talk, my my, uh, the hairs go up on the back of my neck. It's like, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, yeah, that
1: was actually like the moment that brought me into like looking back at it. If you were to say, what was the moment, the one moment where I've never actually thought about this before, but it hit me the second you said that. And I've always thought I'd like it comes up in my mind sometimes but it's like I've never realized that this was the moment when it was when did you decide you need to do to do something about what's going on with this social justice stuff and I was actually having a conversation of course on Twitter and um, it was not going well of course (laughs) because it was on Twitter and I said something along the lines of that the power dynamics or power situation has shifted under some of the new ways that you know Feminism has pushed various views about when women can, you know, so the, the point was that they were saying that, you know, well, we've heard the man's story for centuries, but we've never really heard the woman's story. And I said, well, the story changed. So you, we don't know what the story of, say, a white working class man is under affirmative action, which is new, unless we actually talk to him about that. So that's new. And so we don't know that story. And the person shot back at me very angrily and said, your story has already been told. You don't get to tell it again. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's the moment where I realized that your story has already been told is the phrase that just sticks with me. And it's so inimical to being able to have open, fruitful, Adult conversations about any contentious topic where you can just decide that somebody because of in particular the, the of all the things that you could possibly pick the worst is demographic fact that some person's story has already been told and thus their contribution is utterly invalid and and not necessary, and that they need to just shut up and not talk that was it that was it
0: yeah I, exactly. Right. If you're going to take that position, then I, I'd, I have lost faith in your interest in really solving problems, because I think it's going to take all of us to to have to talk and have grown up civil conversations. And so, yeah, if that's your approach, I'm I'm not with you.
1: Yeah, because it, it, the irony is that it's coming from they are exactly right in their underlying impulse. That's why I said at the beginning earlier that there's this huge kernel of truth in pretty much everything that goes on on this kind of contentious topic. They are right that if you aren't willing, if you are excluding somebody's story, if you aren't willing to listen to that story, then you're missing necessary data that you need to solve the problem. And you can just Trot out a raft of examples uh, where we have done a very bad job historically and even probably some in the present where we're like, oh, well, we're going to dismiss the views of black women they're going to say black our experience is this and we're just going to dismiss it. And the point is you need to listen more. You need to listen more. You need to listen more with the me too movement. This is a huge contemporary example. You know, women were saying me too, me too, me too. What was the point of everybody saying me too is I've also had sexual assault done to me. Nobody listened. It's time to start taking this seriously. So they're correct. But when you then say you're, but you know, you need to listen to me, but your side of the story has already been told we don't need your data that's not how it, you cannot, you, your phrasing was exactly right. You cannot possibly be interested in getting real solutions at that point. It just is a power grab.
0: Right. And it, it, my aha moment came during the Me Too movement when Matt Damon tried to make some observations about the Me Too movement and about Hollywood and what his experiences have been, and he was shut down and yes. i felt like okay stop that, that this is not the way to solve this problem we need to hear from men about this like you know they have they have many things to say about sexual harassment and we better listen if we're going to be serious about making progress on this very tough topic
1: Yeah. Imagine that you, you imagine that you're married and your marriage is having difficulty. And so you decide that you need to go to some kind of a counseling, you know, marriage counselor, a mediation or something like that. And you get there. And then the mediator says, well, you know, the solution here to this problem is going to be that one of you has no input. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> We're just going to do whatever, you know, one of you wants. And the other one has absolutely no input. Is it even conceivable that this is going to work out, you know, for that relationship?
0: Yeah, no, it's doomed to fail. Uh,
1: it's yeah, it's a catastrophe. I can't even I have no words further. Than, it's just it's just a catastrophe. So you if if your if your mission is going to be we need to have diversity and bring more voices to the table and we need to be listened to and we need to be heard more, then that's universally applicable. So if, you know, with the Me Too movement, if they wanna bring this up and say, you know, there's a lot more sexual harassment in the workplace and has been acknowledged and we need to expose this and bring it up, fine. But when men say this is what the changes are that we experience in the workplace as a result, that also becomes relevant because now they are experiencing a new situation and they're presenting new data and if the situation is really such that you believe all women and you don't believe men's defenses or you don't offer them the chance to defend themselves as you see in many of these cases on campus the kind of kangaroo courts they put up on campus that are losing in court everywhere Mm -hmm. when the uh when the man that got in trouble comes back and sues once you once you get to that that place, uh, the power dynamic has even shifted. So if you want to go even further into their theory and say, "Well, the point is that only the person, the people with power, are the ones missing the point," so we have to listen to the people without the power. I'm sorry if you've set up the situation to where it's believe all women and that the man has no defense. You've that person's not the part that man is not the person in power anymore, and the power dynamics have shifted. And now you've set up a circumstance where you by your own standard, have to be obligated to listen to that person and and their experience.
0: Well, and it's fundamentally unfair.
1: It's fundamentally unfair.
0: And I thought we got into this whole thing because we were trying to make things more fair, right?
1: Yeah. So um, I've been doing a lot of reading in the past, uh, you know, many months now, digging into kind of the historical philosophical roots of this. And a lot of the commentary that I've been running into is that the architects of the philosophies that developed over the past say 80 to 100 years into this movement that we're seeing now the scholarship at least that feeds the activists in this movement came from a position that uh, is probably the most if you were to sit back and You were to analyze it in as dispassionate way as possible. You would conclude that they are motivated by hate and anger the goal is revenge, not to fix problems. And I mean, that's, I understand if you feel like you've been cheated or you've had stuff unfair to you for a long period of time, especially the desire to get that kind of revenge or to to hate the people who've been oppressing you or whatever it is, is real. I understand that, but it's also, you know, sort of dangerous to let that become not even sort of dangerous. It's extremely dangerous to let that become the only motivation that you have going and then you'll start justifying every form of uh atrocity or every form of of, of unfairness that you can have and that's exactly what you see in the theory that underlies these movements that are having such a huge social impact now
0: there's something also to me that doesn't feel quite right because it's like well regardless of my own personal victimhood I'm going to make my victimhood be representative of this huge group, you know, like my, my anger can now be enormous because, because I, I can uh, make myself to be this, this victim of, you know, thousands of people and all kinds of injustices, so I'm probably not making any sense here, but there's something weird to me about that.
1: No, that, that, that's actually accurate. It's um, that there's been a shift under this way of thinking uh, that it's, it's oddly very essentialist, seeing as that's the thing that they claim to be fighting against, that the injustices that, say, women have faced, they see those, the, the phrase for it is systemic, or the, the word for it is systemic. They see this as systemic so that any one instance of, say, sexism that comes up is just a... Uh, single manifestation is like one bump in a measles infection right one i don 't even know what those n- nodule or boil or whatever it is it comes up mm-hmm. when you have measles it 's one of those, but the systemic infection is throughout the whole body of society, and so when you experience some kind of victimization as a woman or you experience some bad thing that you can interpret or misinterpret as uh, a victimization experience as a woman, which happens, then you aren't an individual who had something bad happen to you. You are a representative of that entire infected society. And so you are in some sense, something way, way bigger than yourself. So you're actually tapping into a correct understanding of how they view the world when you get that sense.
0: But yeah, it like I say, it feels very uncomfortable because it leads it leads to this outsized outrage for something that it's like, well, you know, everybody has gone through that. That's not that big of a deal.
1: Right. It it also leads to that internalized misogyny accusation, for example, if you don't agree as a woman, because you are a woman. So they know that you are part of that system of oppression and have lived with it your whole life. And then when you say otherwise. You now must have some kind of nefarious motive for saying so.
0: All right, we're running out of time here, but this seems like a good time to talk about how do we avoid moving into this space where we just say, okay, screw it. These people are nuts. And uh, you know, they, they've gone way too far. And so I'm just not gonna worry about these these real issues of unfairness anymore i'm just gonna say screw it
1: yeah that that's a real risk um that is actually what i'm really afraid of is happening or beginning to happen right now and i'm starting to see enough evidence to where i'm starting to get nervous i wouldn't say it. i'm sure it's what's going to happen the way that you do it is that you there is a third option here that uh is the the pendulum not swinging if you want to kind of draw back to the main draw to having our conversation. Um, You can say those people are crazy and then the conclusion does not have to leap to when it's unjust for the conclusion to leap to. It's illogical in fact, it's a logical fallacy here to jump to so I'm not gonna care about the issues they care about. The Mm -hmm. other possible place to jump is I'm going to care about those issues better. I'm going to try to figure out a better way to address those issues than these lunatics who do the same two or three tricks over and over and over again and cause everything to be divisive. Luckily, we don't have to re, I mean, we do have to deal with the fact that we now have social media and some things have changed, uh, in terms of our technology and, you know, the way that people interact and what we're exposed to. So there are some challenges that are, are novel for the most part. We already have a really good roadmap for how this works. We know how to, hold universal liberal values and uh, we know how to treat people as individuals. So if you are a woman and you happen to want to do things that are associated to, with being masculine, who cares? That, that's actually an answer, right? Mm-hmm. And you can, you can take time to understand that liberalism, you know, a good one, an easy one to, to look at that is like gay rights, for example. What's the liberal position on on gay rights it boils down effect, effectively to some people are gay get over it that's it it's none of your business get over it and so of course the goal is that you want if, if that's your view there's no reason to discriminate against anybody it doesn't make any sense some people are this way some people are that way some people want to do this some people want to do that are they actually injuring or hurting anybody are they actually doing something illegal are they actually causing uh some serious harm if not let it be. Uh, And so for me, I think that the thing to do is to jump away from that mentality that, well, these people care so much about this social justice stuff. They care so much about racism. They care so much about sexism and they've blown it all out of proportion. So those problems aren't real. You have to get away from that kind of thinking. You have to think there's got to be a better way than what they're doing. Let's Mm -hmm. find it. That's a very productive, very constructive way to approach everything. Um, Let's try to find out what portion, they. let's assume for five seconds that they're not crazy. Um, They just have really, really bad solutions. And let's figure out what they're talking about. Let's try to analyze that rigorously. And if they don't like it, let them kick and scream. I remember Mm -hmm. one time somebody asked me, I was talking about something about nuclear power and climate and I said, we really, we should be leaning more into nuclear power. And somebody said, well, what are you going to do about all the environmental activists who th- say that it's terrible? And I said, we're going to ignore them because they're wrong. And that was apparently like all hell broke loose after I said that. It is actually okay to ignore people who are, are wrong.
0: Yeah. I mean, otherwise we're just ceding power w- without a reason. Right. right I, mean, if we're already worried about that or or we're already holding back or we're already constrained out of fear of uh, any go ahead. it was very inspirational
1: no, it's it's simple though. it's instead of the natural reaction which causes the pendulum to swing, which is to say, well, whatever they're doing is completely wrong and whatever they care about doesn't need to be carried about, the the position that dampens the swing of the bob and causes it to just hang there in the middle where you know or closer to the middle is maybe these problems there's something more to them than we've been paying attention to let's actually try to find out what it is and do better by it than we had been and forget these extreme attempts to you know the very loud extreme people that are just driving everybody nuts we just ignore them more or less. And if they want to get on, get in on the program and try to inform it and try to help it and help it along, great. Invite mm-hmm. them in. In the book, mm-hmm. we call that, you know, building a golden bridge. If somebody changes their mind and they stop being, you know, disagreeing with you or whatever, they come around to your way of thinking. Don't say stuff like, oh, what took you so long? Or you've always been <laughs> one of them. Just, I'm glad you're here. Here's a shovel, you know?
0: Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I don't think it does much good to hold past behavior against people. And I think we've all had things in our past that we, uh, you know, sort of acts of passion from youthful exuberance that when we look back now from greater distance, it's like, well, we were just a little bit misguided then. So
1: yeah, exactly.
0: I have to forgive people for that.
1: That's to think that's another big key. And you see that as not being, Present in what uh, the the approach to social justice is now is that there's very little room for growth, there's very little room for change. If you were wrong ten years ago about something, you're wrong forever, and we really don't need to encourage that value any any further than it's gone. We really should step back away from that, encourage growth, encourage change, encourage development, and welcome people in who who are coming along.
0: Right. Yeah, we're all learning together. Well, our time is up. Thank you so much for being on the show, James. And I don't know if you want to share with the listeners ways in which they can follow your work. Uh, if you would like to, this would be great. Otherwise, I can share things in the show's notes also.
1: Sure. I mean, the easiest way to get in touch with me is we brought up a few times in the conversation is just to find me on Twitter. That's my overwhelming biggest public presence. I'm unhealthily active on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> you can find me there at conceptual james and uh welcome to the to the jungle <laughs>
0: right well thanks again i really appreciate it i enjoyed talking to you very much
1: yeah me too thank you
0: that's it everybody you've made it through another episode of dear discreet guide trouble at work If you have a problem at work that you would like to submit to the show, you can do that at my website, discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. Spelling matters. Anyway, send in your issue. We'll treat it with confidentiality and respect and see if we can give you some tips or tools. You can also sign up for my mailing list or The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month as well as get information about training programs, books for sale, individual consulting sessions, and all kinds of articles and jokes and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday, so tune in so you can hear more about coping with trouble at work.